I loved the emotional rush of being scared. I still do, of course. I don't go out much to haunted houses, but I still love good, old-fashioned, scary stories. Listener discretion is advised. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In December 1978, Alice Euling lived with her four children, 16-year-old Susan, 13-year-old Wayne, 12-year-old Patty, 11-year-old Billy, in a rural house in Clearwater, Minnesota. Clearwater only had a population of around 300 people. Alice had lived alone with the children for about five years after getting divorced from her husband. Just after 4.30 a.m. on December 15, 1978, 11-year-old Billy pounded on the door of one of his neighbors. When the neighbor answered, Billy said that his family had been shot. Billy explained that he ran through the woods, but he didn't stop at the first house he came to because he was worried that they had been killed too. The neighbor then called the police. The sheriff arrived at the house within minutes. 36-year-old Alice Hewling was dead in her bedroom on the main floor. On the second floor in their bedrooms were the dead bodies of 16-year-old Susan, 13-year-old Wayne, and 12-year-old Patty. They had all been shot to death with a 12-gauge shotgun. Based on Billy's eyewitness account and the evidence of the crime scene, it's believed that the killer entered the house through the kitchen. He walked through the living room to Alice's room. Alice may have been awake and standing. She was found wearing her house coat. Also, her body was lying in a way that indicated that she fell instead of being shot while she was lying down. She had been shot three times. She had also been struck several times with a blunt object. Then the killer went upstairs and he encountered 12-year-old Patty. He told her to get back into bed and everything would be okay. Patty did as the man said. He then walked into the room Wayne and Billy shared. He shot 13-year-old Wayne in the head. He then went to 6-year-old Susan's room and killed her. Next, he went to Patty's room and shot her in the head. Finally, he shot at Billy twice, but he missed. The police found two bullet holes in the mattress close to where Billy's head would have been. Billy explained they had laid perfectly still. 
Then he pretended to be dead when the man tapped his leg. After the killer thought everyone was dead, he left the house. Billy waited 10 to 15 minutes and then ran across the woods to get help. The quadruple homicide shocked the community and a massive police investigation was started. The only evidence the police found were shotgun shells and some footprints in the snow. The sheriff, who was first to arrive at the scene, talked to cold case files. He said the one thing that always haunted him about the crime scene was what he found in Patty's room. On her dresser was a set of clothes that Patty had set out for the morning. He realized that when she set out the clothes, she had planned to get up the next morning and go to school. Instead, she was shot in the head with a shotgun before sunrise. He said the image of the stack of clothes that Patty would never wear will probably stay with him for the rest of his life. Four days after the murders, the police in Wright County, Minnesota were called to a truck stop. Clearwater is part of Wright County. A customer at the truck stop was harassing the waitresses. Before entering the truck stop, the officer ran the man's license plate and discovered that the car he was driving had been stolen. The officer then arrested the man for auto theft. He was identified as 27-year-old Joe Turi. Turi had a troubled life growing up. He was the fourth of five children. His parents were mentally ill and abusive. According to a report from the welfare department, Turi was abused from his own childhood and was never nurtured or loved. His parents got divorced when he was 11. Within a week, they were both remarried. He bounced around between his family home, foster home, detention centers, and the orphanage. He dropped out of school in the 11th grade. As an adult, he never held down a job for very long because he had a violent temper. He had a strong hatred for women and often blamed them for his life's problems. After Turi was arrested at the truck stop, the car he had stolen was impounded. The police searched the car. They found a book with handwritten lists written on scraps of paper. Written on the piece of paper were the names of women. Sometimes he had written their license plate numbers and addresses. Many of the women were waitresses. Of course, the officer was aware of the murder of the Hewling family. He wondered if Turi had any connection to the murders. He noted that many of the women he wrote about were waitresses, and Susan Hewling had worked part-time as a waitress. Also in the car, they found a black metal rod that was wrapped in vinyl. The police thought it might have been the blunt object used to strike Alice. But the police didn't find any blood or tissue on the bar. One last thing that they found in the car was a matchbox car of the Batmobile. At first, they just assumed it was some junk he kept in his car. Ultimately, the police didn't find anything that connected Turi to the murders of the Hewlings. After a few weeks, he was released from jail. Afton is a small town in Minnesota. It's on the banks of the St. Croix River. 
On the other side of the river is Wisconsin. Afton is about 30 miles from downtown Minneapolis. Afton is the biggest ski resort in the area, so it's a popular place for people in the Minnesota-St. Paul area to visit for day trips. During the 1970s, there was an explosion in the population in Afton. It went from 248 people to around 2,500 people. In May 1979, one of the residents was 18-year-old Marlis Wollenhaus. Marlis was a senior in high school and just a month away from graduating. She worked part-time as a waitress. She was petite. She was just over 5 feet tall and weighed around 100 pounds. According to the book Justice for Marlis, Marlis's philosophy is that if you see someone without a smile, give them yours. At about 3.30 p.m. on May 8, 1979, Marlis's mother, Frances, arrived home and in the basement, she discovered her daughter lying in a pool of blood. According to official court documents, Marlis's head was bashed in. Her skull was fractured and there were several star-shaped cuts on her scalp. Frances called 911. While Frances waited for the ambulance, she held her daughter. Marlis was rushed to the hospital. She underwent emergency surgery, but she never regained consciousness. ATO Marlis Wallenhaus was pronounced dead on May 10, 1979. The police talked to neighbors of the family. One neighbor saw a car fishtail out of their driveway about 15 minutes before Francis arrived home. They spread gravel onto an 8-year-old girl who was walking by the driveway. The police talked to the girl and said it was a small, cream-colored car. The police also talked to Marlis's friends. One of them had been at a restaurant with Marlis the night before she was attacked. Marlis was upset when she saw a man sitting in the back of the restaurant. When they left the restaurant, the man followed them on a motorcycle. The friend didn't know the man. She said he had blonde hair and he was wearing a baseball cap, leather coat, and sunglasses. The police followed up on these leads, but no arrests were made. The police also searched the area around Marlis's home, but they didn't find anything of interest. It wasn't long before the case went cold. Here is a quick word from our sponsor. We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems. Classic functional medicine back to basics health tips and special updates from the best doctors in the United States of America. Check out this health and wellness podcast shows. Explore Health Talk Weekly, Healthy Lifestyle Matters, Excellent Health Digest, Healthy and Free Daily and last but not least. Weekly Health and Fitness Corner. Also, check out Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told Fiction Podcast, for that real-life on-the-go experience with the 27-year-old golden boy, who made our guest invite number one list. He tells us about his story as it happens in real time and in real life. It's Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told. 
Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show. In September 1980, 19-year-old Diane Edwards lived in St. Paul, Minnesota. She worked as a waitress at a Perkins restaurant. On September 26, 1980, Edwards finished her shift at work and started walking home alone. Suddenly, a man driving a station wagon pulled up on the sidewalk in front of her. The driver got out of the car and forced Edwards to get into it. He then sped off. Five people witnessed the kidnapping and reported it to the police. On October 9, 1980, nearly two weeks later, a hunter found a pair of glasses in a purse near Elk River, about 35 miles from St. Paul. In the wallet was Diane Edwards' ID. The police scoured the area and brought in a helicopter. One of the people in the helicopter spotted something in a ditch a short distance away from where the purse and glasses were found. It was the nude body of Diane Edwards. She was face down in the ditch. The medical examiner determined that she had died from a single stab wound to the chest. In October 1980, not long after Edwards' body was found, Joseph Turry was arrested for three kidnappings and rapes. One of his victims was a 13-year-old girl. The police searched the garage where Terry was living and they found several spiral notebooks that contained women's names. In the notebooks was Diane Edwards' name and the phone number for the restaurant where she worked. But the police couldn't find any other evidence that connected Terry to the murder. In April 1981, Joseph Terry was convicted of the three kidnappings and rapes. He was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Turi was having problems in the county jail. He felt that the other inmates picked on him and he was mistreated by the staff. So he reached out to a sheriff's deputy and the deputy got him moved to a new cell block. Turi was touched that the deputy would do something nice for him. The deputy gave him his business card and said to contact him if he could do anything else for him. Two weeks later, Turi reached out to the deputy. Turi didn't want to spend the rest of his life in prison, but he would do his time in a psychiatric hospital. He told the deputy that he had a bargaining chip. He said that he would clear up the murder of Diane Edwards for the sheriff's department. The deputy then approached the district attorney with what Turi had told him. The district attorney said that they were open to the deal but they wouldn't make any promises. The deputy then sat down with Joseph Turi and he talked about the murder of Diane Edwards. These are recordings of the actual conversation. You said you saw a gal walking up the street? Yeah. Did you stop by that, this gal? Yeah. Who was she? Diane. Diane who? Edwards. After you got her in the car... How did you manage to keep her in the car? Tied a rope around her arms. 
back of her. Tied a rope around her arms behind her. After kidnapping her, he drove her out to the area where her body was later found. He raped her in the front seat of the car. Did she say something to you or do something after you finished having intercourse the first time on the front seat? Yeah, she screamed at me and said something that I can't remember exactly. And how did you respond to that? You blew up. And when you blew up, what happened? I stabbed her. He then dragged her out near the ditch and raped her again. He thought she might have been dead at this point. The investigators thought it was possible that Turi had gotten the information from the news or possibly another inmate. So they asked Turi to take them to the area where the body was found. Turi led them to the area and pointed to a spot about four feet from where the body was found. This proved to the investigators that he was Diane Edwards' killer. On May 13, 1981, he was charged with Edwards' murder. Then Terry found out that wasn't guaranteed that he was going to a psychiatric hospital. Instead, he would have to go to trial for Edwards' murder and deal with whatever sentence he was given. In late 1981, Terry was in the Sherbrooke County Jail awaiting the trial for the murder of Diane Edwards. He was desperate to avoid prison. So he decided to look crazy by writing two letters to the judge. He dictated the letters and his cellmate wrote them. In the first letter, Terry said that he wanted to date a waitress he had met, Susan Hewling. Susan told him that her mother wouldn't let her date. So he started following her mother around. One day, he went to Susan's home and told her mother that he wanted to date her daughter. She called him a pervert and told him to get lost. Terry was furious and decided to get revenge. He planned on tying up the family and raping one of the daughters. Early on December 15th, he got into their home. But then Susan's mother recognized him, so he shot her once and then beat her. He grabbed Susan's mother by the hair and told her that before she died, he would put her through more physical and mental pain than she had ever experienced. He then went upstairs and shot two girls and a boy in the head. He then shot Alice twice more. In the second letter, written in December 1981, Terry details the murder of Marlis Wollenhouse. He said he killed her with a hatchet. He said during the murder, the dog was upstairs barking and he panicked. He said he got away quickly. Here is a quick word from our sponsor. We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems. Classic functional medicine back to basics health tips and special updates from the best doctors in the United States of America. Check out this health and wellness podcast shows. Explore Health Talk Weekly, Healthy Lifestyle Matters, Excellent Health Digest, 
healthy and free daily and last but not least. Weekly Health and Fitness Corner. Also, check out Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told Fiction Podcast, for that real life on the go experience with the 27-year-old golden boy, who made our guest invite number one list. He tells us about his story as it happens in real time and in real life. It's Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told. Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show. The letters didn't end up reaching the judge. Somehow, they made it to the local TV station. They did a report about the confessions. Joseph Turi did a jailhouse interview in response to the report. He denied writing the letters. The reporter pointed out that he had signed the letters. He said he had just been asked to sign a blank piece of paper and it wasn't his handwriting. He thought he had signed a petition to get better food in jail. As proof that he didn't commit the murders, Turi said he had an alibi for the murder of Marlis. He said he had been working at the Ford Motor Plant on a production line. Investigators called Ford and they confirmed that he was working at the time of the murder. So his confessions were dismissed as fiction, possibly written by another inmate trying to cause him trouble. Joseph Turi went to trial for the murder of Diane Edwards in January 1982. He was convicted and he was sentenced to life in prison. For years, the murders of the Hewlings and Marlis sat cold. In 1995, 13 years after Turi was convicted of Diane Edwards' murder, the sheriff met with Marlis's mother, Frances. He promised that there would be a thorough investigation of her daughter's case. He assigned two investigators to the case. Their biggest problem was that they didn't have any physical evidence regarding the murder. So they started reviewing all the suspects. One of those suspects was Joseph Turi. The problem was they had an alibi for the time of the murder. He was working at the Ford plant. The investigators found out he was working when they called the Ford plant. The cold case investigators decided it couldn't hurt to follow up and they asked Ford if they could see the time card. The investigators inspected the card and noticed something was wrong. The name on the card was Joseph Turi, but the birth date was many years off. It turned out that it was Turi's father's time card, not his. Both Joseph Turi Sr. and Jr. worked at the plant. On the day of Marlis's murder, Joseph Sr. had worked the earlier shift, and Joseph Jr. had worked the late shift. So he would have had time to commit the murder and get to work on time. Now Turi had no alibi. The investigators then began to look at his confession letters. They noticed details that had never been made public. For example, he said as he left, he spun his tires and sprayed a little girl with gravel. In the case file, there was an interview with an eight-year-old girl who happened to be walking by the Woolen House's driveway as the killer was leaving. 
She said that man driving a cream-colored car with gravel and dust on her as she walked by the driveway. This information had never been made public. In 1996, Joe Turry was indicted for the murder of Marlis Wollenhouse. After he was indicted, the prosecutor decided to look through the evidence collected from the stolen car Turry was driving in the days after the Hewling murders. He thought that the toy Batmobile was odd and seemed out of place. So he thought perhaps it came from the Hewling house. The prosecutor tracked down the lone survivor of that night, Billy Hewling, who was just 11 when his family was slaughtered. The prosecutor asked him if the Batmobile belonged to him, and he said it did. He had gotten most of his possessions from his family's house, but he had not seen the Batmobile since the night of the murders. The prosecutor concluded that Turi took the car as a souvenir. The prosecutor then had investigators reopen the Hewling case. In Turi's car, one thing that was found was a metal bar wrapped in vinyl. They thought it was used to strike Alice Hewling who had bruises on her body. The medical examiner compared the bar to the bruises. He concluded that it was most likely the object used to beat Alice. The investigators concluded that Joseph Turi had also killed Alice Hewling and her three children. In September 1998, Joseph Turi went to trial for the murder of Marlis Wollenhouse. The trial lasted three weeks and the jury deliberated for four hours. Nineteen years after Marlis was murdered, 47-year-old Joseph Turi was found guilty of murder. He was once again sentenced to life in prison. Then in May 1999, Turi was indicted on four counts of murder for the killings of the four Hewlings. Turi went to trial for those murders in January 2000, just over 21 years after the murders. The trial lasted nearly a month. The jury deliberated for about 10 hours. He was found guilty on all counts. Terry was given an additional four life sentences, bringing his total to six life sentences. However, these aren't the only murders that Joseph Turi is suspected of committing. In one of his confession letters, he takes credit for another murder. In November 1979, 20-year-old Joan Biersbach was living in St. Cloud, Minnesota. She worked as a clerk at the Stearns County Social Services Department. On November 5, 1979, she was supposed to play volleyball with some co-workers, but she never showed up. Two days later, her car was found abandoned in a Perkins restaurant parking lot about six blocks from her home. Five years later, Joan's skeletal remains were found next to the Mississippi River near Monticello, Minnesota. Monticello is about 30 miles from St. Cloud. The medical examiner determined that she had been stabbed to death. Joseph Turi remains the prime suspect in the case, but he has never been charged. At the time of this video, 71-year-old Joseph Turi is serving his sentence at the Minnesota Correctional Facility Stillwater 
at Bayport, Minnesota. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you. We have a great show today, but first, take a second to make sure you've subscribed to our show wherever you're listening to podcasts. It's the best way to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. Thanks. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.